And just shake it out. Shake it off. Welcome to Womance. I'm Morgan. I'm Isabeau. Uh, and this is Womance. That's the order we go in. A podcast about romance novels. About hockey. About beavers. About monster cocks. And their adjacent nicknames. About cut and uncut dicks. About Canada. About overzealous mothers. About weird families. About Chicago real estate. About stepbrother porn. About the pitfalls of first-person narrative. It's shockingly not about Zambonis. Shockingly not. Oh my god, you're so right. About gossip. But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And our This week... We're talking about Pucked by Helena Hunting. Yes, we are. This is book two in our Entropy series where Morgan and I discuss the tropes and subgenres that we have formed not great opinions of (laughs) and really challenging ourselves to investigate the whys and wherefores of our yucks and yums. Correct. Should I read the about this book? Please do. With a famous NHL player for a stepbrother, Violet Hall is well acquainted with the playboy reputation of many a hockey star. So of course she isn't interested in legendary team captain Alex Waters or his pretty beat up face and rock hard six pack abs. Lots of hyphenates in that sentence. When Alex inadvertently obliterates Violet's misapprehension regarding the inferior intellect of hockey players, he becomes much more than just a hot body with a face to match. Suffering from From a complete lapse in judgment, Violet discovers just how good Alex is with the hockey stick in his pants. Oh my god. I'm just, I'm so turned on right now. Violet believes her night of orgasmic magic with Alex is just that, one night. But Alex starts to call, and text, and email, and send extravagant, are you ready, and quirky gifts. Oh my god. Suddenly, he's too difficult to ignore, and nearly impossible not to like. The problem is, the media portrays Alex as a total player, and Violet doesn't want to be part of the game. Interesting that that is the problem, the back of the book sites. I know. I've got to say, if I could just give, I feel like the back of the book actually summarizes my feelings on this book entirely. And if I could provide our listeners with a preview, suddenly this book is too difficult to ignore and nearly impossible (laughs) not to like. Yup. So I believe this particular text was recommended to us by M with many underscores after their username. Let me double check because credit where credit is due. Credit is where credit is due. And we chose this in addition to Fumbled because this felt like a little bit more of an independent publish. Like, I don't think you can get a physical copy of Pucked. Yeah, M-E-M, and then a series of underscores um, after their username. So thank you so much, M. Long silence. And we chose this because hockey was one of the other super popular sports in sports romance. Yes. Mm -hmm. Where do you want to start? Well, where do I want to start? Where do I want to start? I'm on Helena Hunting's website and she has a little cartoon clip art beaver. 
I can start there. I would love <laughs> never ever to hear, well, not ever ever, but like, boy, this decided to call Pussy Beaver so hard. It just thought it was adorable and then just like fucking quadrupled down at every moment. And when it wasn't Beaver, it turned to Cooter. And mm-hmm. I was like, boy, haven't heard Cooter in I don't know when. <laughs> and like, fucking why though? I feel like that was so much of my reaction to this book that was like, fucking why? What? Fucking why? I want to talk about the hero. I want to talk about the heroine. But I would like to first talk about my personal journey reading Pucked, book one of the Pucked series by Helena Hunting. In the beginning, I was baffled. I was upset. (laughs) I was disappointed. Mm -hmm. Because this heroine... It seems like a person who actually considers themselves quirky. And when people yes. consider themselves quirky and say, I'm quirky, or they ask you with almost incomprehensible, like, bated breath if you've seen the new girl, mm-hmm. what is actually happening is a certain dysfunctionality, like a misunderstanding, a misinterpretation of social norms that mm-hmm. they're always butting up against. And to reconcile that, they've decided that it's not weird, it's cute, which is one way of dealing with that kind of worldview. For example, the description of the mother is where I first start to get nervous. Mm-hmm. Our heroine, Violet's mother, whose name is Sky. Yep. She is described by Violet, because this is in first person perspective, as crazy, awesome, albeit super inappropriate mother. Mm-hmm. My first comment is no, 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 Because I know where this is going. Then, as I'm reading, you know, I'm reading the term beaver used during lovemaking. Yep. I am getting a lot of idolization of violence and also impossibly big penises. Yep. She's constantly talking about, and this is the thing I personally have a hang up about. She's wearing little boys Marvel underwear, Marvel Comics themed underwear. And that's presented as like very sexy, which perhaps we could say, oh, this traces back to that scene in Charlie's Angels with Cameron Diaz yes. uh, when she tells the postman that he can feel free to put letters in her slot while wearing Spider-Man underwear. But I also want to point out finding children's underpants sexually appealing is strange. Problematic. Um, and it's also doing the fan fiction character building thing of their clothing communicating what media they're interested in which is a way of character building but also like makes me feel weird about the person like just like picturing someone I'm supposed to like sexually identify with as dressing in juvenilia is is strange for me so uh, you know I'm not super excited and then things start to shift I start to get this inkling that maybe the book is in on the fact that Violet is weird Mm -hmm. and not cute which is interesting because it is from first person perspective ugh miss use of the term literary pun. He does not make a pun. He does not make a pun at all. Thank you. I also have that highlighted in my notes. I'm like, not pun. I want to find the point I highlighted where I was like, "Mm." okay, here it is. So this book does this thing where it genders masturbation. So she talks about jilling off as opposed to jacking off as Mm -hmm. opposed to just saying masturbated. Masturbate. So silence follows. Three seconds too late. I have six witty retorts. Relatable. Sadly, the moment for cleverness has passed. Are you really masturbating? There's the whooshing sound again. No, I've already stroked my beaver. Oh my God. I giggle. I'm so immature. And at that point, 
I got the feeling that she wasn't like charmed by her own whimsicalness. I started to get the feeling that she was uncomfortable with her own way of speaking. And I think it's Mm -hmm. because we get that point of self-deprecation right before where she's like six seconds too late. I have a witty retort. And then Mm -hmm. all that she can say is I've already stroked my beaver and is regretful of it. And then I comment a little bit later on, Violet has like a really weird obsessive voice. The fact that the hero acknowledged it and asked her to stop with Beaver makes me think it's meant to be a difficult trait on purpose. Hmm. It is still making it hard for me to read. That is going Mm -hmm. to change. What happens in the plot that you remember as the turn for you? I remember it was like halfway through and she's talking to her mother and she talks about her relationship with her mother as being something that she's embarrassed of and she knows Mm -hmm. her mom is different from other moms but the person her mother is has made her the person she is and so she's reconciled with it and she's created a positive relationship with her mom and I kind of got the feeling that she herself was talking about herself in that moment and I was like oh this book is self-aware and then as we start to kind of progress through the novel we discover that Alex is also kind of preformed in this like social awkwardness that Mm -hmm. accounts for a great deal of the way he acts and when we get his internality his kind of shame and frustration is much more palpable and so Mm -hmm. then I was able to be happy for them as two people who found each other Mm -hmm. and were able to feel comfortable and more like themselves around each other even though the novel continues with like gross to me terms like beaver like fuck hot like the weird relationship with her stepbrother uh, which is like never fully explained never fully there are like explained. a lot of weird Const- details there constantly like prodded and never interrogated totally whose itch are we scratching here because like i am genuinely curious and now i'm also genuinely a little bit concerned yeah and you know step relations is like the most searched thing on Pornhub nowadays so uh, (laughs) Helena hunting ahead of her time the thing is is like there is something that charms me about this book and I think I'm gonna spend this whole conversation trying to articulate it I think that's fine and I think there is something about the fact that with this project of entropy I'm supposed to go into something that I am already apprehensive about and then try to have an open mind about it and it allowing me to be open-minded in a way about all sorts of things that I never Mm -hmm. would have been otherwise. For instance, this book is like doing like a weird version of consent, but it's not good consent. Nope. And this book is like really playful with language, but in like a gross 12-year-old boy kind of way. And yet halfway through, there's a turn for me and I am able to enjoy it. And I think that there's something smarter going on under the surface of this book than the first person perspective would allow you to believe. Sure. So let's maybe start there with Violet, our first person who dominates the first eight chapters. This is not a chapter for chapter parody. No, it's not like he'll ever catch up to her. He has very few chapters compared to her. Which I think is actually fine and led to some like real spaces for misunderstanding that like actually felt like surprises in Violet's 
POV. But Violet's POV, it's like the most manic pixie dream girl, two guys, a girl, and a pizza place version of this, where it's like, <laughs> what a reference. Like, I have in my notes, I'm like, why is she just like Robin Scherbatsky, but worse? The book says like she doesn't care about hockey. She's not interested in hockey, but her whole world revolves around hockey because her stepfather right. is a scout. Her mother's whole life is being married to a scout. Her stepbrother is a professional player. Who plays for the Blackhawks. But they're called the Hawks in the book. Yep. They're never referred to as the Blackhawks. Do you think that's corrective? No, I don't think that's corrective. I think she just wrote it as the Hawks so that she wouldn't get copyrighted infringement but like the black oh. and red panties that she's wearing that's the colors of the black hawks they're oh, in yeah. chicago the well, hawks have just been abbreviated when i to when the I, hawks when i first read the hawks i was like holy shit she's talking about a real team that's crazy mm-hmm. but then as the book went on and it was never referred to as the black hawks i thought she might so for those of you who don't know the city of chicago's hockey team is the black hawks and it is a depiction of a native american specifically a potomotomy people say that it gets around the races mascot issue because it's making a very specific reference. I'm not really convinced by that argument. So I thought perhaps Helena Hunting was attempting to be corrective, but you suspect it has more to do with copyright infringement. I do. Right. Like what did they call Tinder in the right swipe? I can't remember. Yeah. All right. Maybe it's not corrective, but it does feel corrective. Like she never talks about there being like a Native American mascot. No, she doesn't. Benefit of the doubt. But she does wear the colors that the actual team. I just read that straight. So much of this, I feel like the author is very intentional and very smart. And I hated Violet for so long of this novel that it's amazing to me that I felt like the author was like a really savvy human because Violet is so like violently unlikable her voice is just atrocious and like this whole thing with her stepbrother the first eight chapters are also so incredibly slut shamey and like that for me was the biggest obstacle in finding purchase in this novel yeah so she's not into hockey it's not her thing except that's the entirety of her world as her best friend her entire personality is hockey right also her job firm for hockey players. Right. She's incredibly well versed in like all of the what I would call like social minutia of hockey. She has this whole thing about like puck bunnies which are women who congregate after games and like try to hook up with players. I I was familiar with this phenomenon because of the program Letter Kenny. And I understand (laughs) that these women wear the same kind of black plastic framed glasses, those like oblong rectangles like this is how they're depicted in Letter Kenny, and they wear flannel button-up shirts. So, like the phenomenon of Puck Bunny, as I've interpreted it, is very much this kind of beer commercial girl, which I yes. think we often find revolving around sports fandom. Yes, and Violet takes great measures to try and separate herself from this kind of look and feel, but there's very little about her that would indicate she isn't indiscernible at these parties, at these victory parties from the puck bunnies. Right, who are nakedly trying to have sexual relationships with these players. And like, she's so judgmental about that and so slut-shamey. And she's so slut-shamey of the players themselves. And like, part of me was like, I can suspend my disbelief that you are slut-shaming these players because they are treating women badly. But the way that Violet (laughs) treats and talks about other women, I'm like... A skunk stripe of roots. 
at her. Uh, yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. I was like, I dislike you so much because of how much you dislike women. Her way of expressing her worldview is so similar to like a Facebook aunt. Like she's yes. trying to be zany while being the most conservative <laughs> version of yes. that. Okay. So this is why I think Helena had, I think the author, I think the text is being very deft in all of these choices is that the things that she chooses specifically to malign are things that would indicate a sort of self-consciousness. Like she's frustrated with her book club's selection of a piece of like classic English literature as opposed to another sexy romance novel. And while she's like admonishing this book for being boring and dumb, she is also captivated by the fact that the hero, Alex Waters, is able to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And she uses that as a determinant of his value as like being smarter than the average hockey player. Mm-hmm. Even though she herself has like dismissed the book. Now, when this other figure talks about it, suddenly it seems like something of interest. To take that book seriously, to read that book, to understand it and to interrogate it is now seen as a thing of value. There are bleeding moments when she's talking about these puck bunnies. Like there's a moment when she's using the bathroom and she hears a couple of women talking about a hat trick Mm -hmm. and she is frustrated by the fact that she doesn't really know what that means in the context that they're using it in, but assumes it's something sexual and is immediately bristled by the idea that her potential lover has participated in something that she cannot sexually comprehend. Mm -hmm. I start to forgive Violet for all of these things because the book understands them as coming from a place of fear and insecurity Mm -hmm. as opposed to making real value statements about the world. Or maybe it's just wildly uneven. And in my pursuit of giving it like the benefit of the doubt because I don't like sports, I have gone too far in my generosity. This is what I will say. I read this book incredibly quickly, not only for the podcast, but because I too reached a point where it went from what felt like hot, fiery trash burning my eyelids into something that was pleasurably and incredibly readable. I am not afraid to admit that I was up until two o'clock in the morning, not because I had to get this done, not because I hadn't budgeted time in the morning to read it because I had, but because I couldn't actually put it down. There is something that happens in Violet's insane unlikability. You're right. We begin to understand her zany overconfidence and quirkiness for what it is, which is truly fear and a lack of self-confidence in making choices. I think like Violet is living in a very safe place. She's very well loved, but she hasn't really taken like the steps to assert her independence. You know, she lives in her parents' pool house and they like take care of all of her bills and like all of this other shit. She got her job Um, because of her connections to the industry. Exactly. Like while everything feels immensely safe for Violet, it also feels like her value is precarious. Yes. And I think like that precarity becomes more and more clear and understated in her perspective because Violet never has like a come to Jesus, a really reflective moment where she's like, huh, maybe I make these choices because they don't feel good. 
Yeah. Maybe I should just get to know the puck bunnies. Yeah. Like, she never has one of those. But, like, you can also really forgive her because she's, like, fucking 22 in the novel. And Alex is only 26. She never stopped living with her parents, like, even when she was in college. Right. And he goes directly from high school into a pro sports scenario where, you know, his agent is making most of the difficult choices for him. And his accountant is making his business choices. And he really does get taken to task over the course of the novel for how Mm -hmm. he is managing his personal life and his inability to do so independently. Just to give you a sense of the kind of claustrophobic, like obsessive language of Violet, Chapter two, they've just met. They are making out at a victory party at a bar that she went to the game because her stepbrother plays. Her stepbrother, who is weirdly interested in her sex life and indeed is sexually possessive of her without having had sex with her. He walks out. He's upset to see the two of them making out. He interrupts their session. And Violet says to him, what do you want, douche whore? Oh my God, that's right. (laughs) She continues, haven't you ruined my night and Enough by interrupting my mouth fucking session with your fuck hot teammate. Now you have to disturb my masturbation session too. Yep. Oh no, that's whenever she's made out with him and uh, she goes back to the hotel and starts masturbating thinking about him. Yeah. And she answers her cell phone thinking it's going to be her step brother. But it right. is in fact... Alex Waters. Alex Waters. Canadian Alex Waters, which in Violet's mind, she always reconciles his strange behavior because let's get into Alex's strange behavior by the fact that he's Canadian. And that's how she rationalizes it to the people around her. So Alex Waters, they end up having sex. She like goes up to his room in her two small pajamas. And in the book, it says that she hasn't worn them since high school and she puts them on and they fit like capri pants. And I was like, what kind of growth spurt did you go through at age? 15. In college. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but she's like got capri pants with her ass hanging out of the top and like a too tight shirt in these pajamas that are made for children. And we are meant to understand this as a very like whoopsie sexy moment. She doesn't realize how hot she is. It's because she's got Spider-Man on the cover and she's wearing her big nerdy glasses because she already took her contacts out, Morgan. Boys Don't you love it. <laughs> Boys love it. If you want to listen to me rant about <laughs> sexual infantile of women. We've done many episodes on pubic hair, but Pucked brings to the surface another phenomenon that I'm equally icked out by, which is sexualizing child's clothing. Jammies. You know, sexy schoolgirl to putting on a child's pajamas and it's like too tight on your womanly form. It's a weird line to totter on for me. So let's talk about Alex's courtship of our heroine. Or should we talk about his foreskin first? Because that feels like another important character in this book. Yeah, Alex's penis is a very important character in this book. And like, you know what? At first I was like, we are spending a lot of time with Alex's foreskin, but I'm not opposed to this because I don't think enough romances, especially in the American industry, the default is cut. Bravo to Helena Hunting for reminding us that the default of cut penis for Gentiles in the US is a terrible thing that we need to talk about and how sex negative it is, blah. 
blah, 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 blah. I was not immediately opposed Which to is- how much time we were spending with Alex's foreskin. <laughs> you know how people like whenever they talk about Woody Allen films, they're like, I love that the city of New York was my favorite character in the movie, right? right. I feel like Alex's foreskin is a character in this book. Yes, I think that's right. And that it you gets can its, name it. It gets its own name, Monster Cock, later referred to as Snuffy. MC, which is the cute little, you know, version of that MC. And he has a very big uncut penis. He does. Um, and when it's flaccid, it has two names. So it's Monster Cock when it's erect, but when it's flaccid, it's Snuffy for snuffle up, I guess. Yeah, because it looks like a elephant's nose. <laughs> What does Robert California say in the office? He says, have you ever noticed when people draw houses, they're all colonials and when they draw penises, they're all circumcised? I don't think it's a coincidence that you and I are referencing so much other media in this episode. Because the thing about Pucked is it is just contemporary enough to feel like truly grounded in my own personal world. Like it doesn't do the thing that Not the Girl You Married did where it gets way too specific and suddenly I'm like, where is she? Who is she? What is she doing? It is vague enough and specific enough that I'm like... Oh, yeah. But yeah, his monster cock, they're making out. He goes up to her room, which she is sharing with her mother and stepfather. And they have this thing at the door. And he's like, well, you can come up to my place. And like, we don't have to have sex. Like, I don't expect anything. And she's immediately like, okay. What a gentleman. (laughs) What a fucking gent. And they go up and like immediately her pants are off. They're in the bed. I did like, like, I did like that he offered offered her a non-alcoholic beverage and then made mm-hmm. her something interesting. Non-alcoholic mm-hmm. drinks do not get enough shout outs in culture generally. Super true. But he makes her like a fizzy grapefruit juice, which is delicious. And yes. also like does more to show his conscientiousness and care than him being like, I have zero expectations because of course they have zero expectations. Right. To your point where this book like is really, really conscious of what vocal consent needs to look like from the male perspective and is like less good on what vocal consent needs to look like from the female perspective. I would like Like to address this directly and specifically. Sure, but I wanted to make the point where it's like when he made her a sober drink, that was actually a really good show not tell regarding consent. Yes. I think this book does the thing which I see happen quite frequently in romance and honestly in conversations I've had with women in the past, which is not understanding that consent is a two-way street. And I understand Mm -hmm. where confusion comes from because men feel like they have so much of the power. Mm -hmm. But playing with and touching a man's genitals when he's not conscious, when he's asleep, is sexual assault. Yes. So Violet sexually assaults (laughs) the hero in this book. playing Multiple times. Multiple times. At one point at the end of the book, she actually dresses it up in an outfit. The penis. While he's sleeping. But like if you read that Alex was putting an outfit on her labia while she was sleeping. Outrage. Yes. Hot white flames on the side of my head. Outrage. And it's important that we should feel likewise outraged when Violet ties a cape around 
his flaccid penis while he's sleeping. And then when he wakes up, he's so turned on by her breasts, which by the way, shout out, you know, while I'm being critical of this novel, shout out to this novel for including titty fucking, which I have not read in a romance novel ever. Ever. Even in the erotica that I've read, this was a first time for me as well. Yeah. Super inclusion. Way to think outside the box. But maybe think more inside the box whenever we're talking about (laughs) consent. And what is sexual assault? He gets so turned on that his penis becomes erect and she's tied the wee little cape she hot glued for it too tight. And now his penis is in actual physical pain. That was she's a very so quirky. Weird. She's so quirky. And that's like, that's how we're supposed to read that scene. And then she feels really bad. She almost gets in tears. And he's like, I want to be mad at her. But if I see a woman in tears, I'm not going to be mad. And like, you're right. Like, this is totally. And this is one of those moments that I think you're right where it's like I read that scene and I was like this is really fucking weird and why are we doing this like very X-rated new girl version of this like but you're right it's straight up sexual assault and it has real painful consequences for our hero and we're meant to laugh track it off that's how discordant this book is in general yeah it's just often very discordant for a book that at other moments slaps so fucking hard yeah I want to talk more about Alex's penis. Sure, um, let's talk about it all goddamn day. It's an important it is an important character. So she has two nicknames as Isabeau pointed out. When it's erect it's called Monster Cock, which I thought was a ridiculous offensive nickname. And when it's flaccid it's called Snuffy, which is short for Snuffleupagus, which I thought was a ridiculous offensive nickname. <laughs> so I reached out to the penis havers, a few of the penis havers in my life, and I did ask them directly If a sex partner referred to your penis as monster cock, how would you feel? What do you think the overwhelming response was, Isabeau? Positive? Positive. Even if it's apprehensively positive, I think one friend told me, I mean, I wouldn't stop. (laughs) Penis havers. I only asked cis men. Men who are into their penises are very into them being referred to as monster cock. Significantly felt more offended by being called snuffy. That makes sense to me. You know, Alex is not a person as a character who has a lot of like internal resources. He has self-confidence, but it's really lacking in terms of sexuality. Yep. The reason I was concerned is that her calling his penis snuffy and monster cock seems mean, seems socially inept to the point of cruelty. Mm-hmm. I would feel super hurt if like a dude called me like gorilla grip when I was aroused and then called it big bird when I was not aroused. (laughs) I would be so personally hurt, even if it was like to be understood as complimentary in some way. It would feel hurtful to have my genitalia at once like humanized and also separated from me and then entirely defined what it could offer the other party sexually. It just feels mean. I think it is mean. And I also understand how the penis havers that you asked and also Alex in this novel see it as like wildly complimentary because so much of like the Thunderdome of being a bro is so much about cock size and how you use it. Yeah, how you use it. And I think like that part of it where especially since Alex Waters, our main hero, spent a lot of his youth as a competitive figure skater. So Mm -hmm. his masculinity 
femininity was constantly being questioned or emasculated in other ways. So having someone being like, you have such a monster cock. Your seed of all masculinity is so huge. It's fucking terrifying and monstrous. He's yeah. like, yes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, like a monster is a, is a fearful thing. It's not like she called him blimp dick where you like picture it like <laughs> gently. It's big, but it's like gently floating across the sky. No, no. There's nothing gentle about it's his dick. It's not elephant penis, you know, no. where it like remembers things really well and has a no. certain human quality to it. It's literal monster. It's monster. Like the unknowable, destroyer, violent, and also very big. And he's like, oh, thank you very much. Yeah, that's exactly what he's like. The author is actually incredibly savvy. Having us know later in the book about Alex's inherent insecurities around being a really excellent skater. And part of that being because of his figure skating training and like how graceful he is and why he's so quick on the ice. But also that comes with this whole freight train of emasculization and like how his mom is fucking weird. But also not just that, like his father, right? Like form of masculinity you're supposed to emulate and, you know, our fucked up society is, you know, a socks and sandals wearing hippie. (laughs) Yeah, like a pacifist. His father's countenance is understood as problematic to the other characters, but I don't think necessarily to the text. Yes. But the fact that that's how he's positioned, which is in direct conflict with like the career that Alex has chosen for himself, which is to be in Mm -hmm. a very violent, aggressive sport. Mm -hmm. Also further justifies his feelings of elation around being called monster cock. God, justification is the exact right term. This book is so insidiously good at justifying violence and justifying hyper masculinity. Yes. And I think like that you're so right. Like until you said it, and especially in terms of his like hippy dippy high checked out dad, I was like, shit, you're right. Because it is, it's constantly justifying hyper masculinity. We're talking about people who like get in scrums on the ice, but are also decking each other in motherfucking public. He's constantly getting in fights on the ice as well, which yeah, I don't understand a lot about hockey, but I do understand that that it is a job for refs to stop that from happening. And it's something that the audience enjoys, but is not necessarily like officially celebrated. It's not officially celebrated, but it is called a scrum. And when a scrum happens and everybody has to go to the penalty box, it's like NASCAR. You don't watch somebody go around the track 50 times because you're so excited about how good they are driving so fast. You're waiting for an accident. It's also not the same as like football where knocking another person down is a key part of the game. Totally. But that brings me to why, okay, I've reformed a new theory on why hockey and football are are so pervasive. Yeah. And it's violence as an acceptable yes. communication of virility and masculinity in the modern era. Yes. And hockey and football allow us to do that, whereas basketball does not. And really neither does soccer. Nobody's like really getting into it in that way. They think they are. Is that, is that sufficiently American critiquing soccer enough? <laughs> yeah, it is. It's Have really you good. seen how they just flop down and they act like they're hurt real bad, but they barely got tapped? I think you're right. I think it's this just justification of violence, which in romance terms would be the justification of an alpha. Right, like, right. The things that we find really grotesque about masculinity and it's like 
IRL form yeah. can be pleasurable in the space of a book that we can close and yeah. not interact with in real life. And when she's like kissing him, she talks about really enjoying like touching her tongue to his like split lip where it's a little yeah. bit bloody. Like it's that visceral. Yeah, it's Which very I visceral. wasn't expecting. But I think that kind of insidiousness and that like this book is really layers deep where it's talking about you know, the pleasure and like when men were men. And I think one of the ways it does that and perhaps insidious may not be correct. I kind of hate to use the term insidious because it it is a value statement. Mm -hmm. And romance is a place for pleasure. And you are exactly right, Isabeau. One of my favorite things about romance is that I can read things that I would otherwise be uncomfortable with in real life. Mm -hmm. I can take pleasure in them and then I can shut the book. Mm -hmm. And that part of my pleasure has been sated and does not need to enter my real life. I'm not interested Mm -hmm. in pursuing it in other ways which is a positive however it is is a social ill that has given me this desire which is the difference between structure and lived experience yes so if we're talking about this structurally his constant gift giving to her oh my god 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 so after their first sexual encounter she returns to Chicago and he's going on tour which by the way I want to talk about the things that I do not believe are real about pro sports. I just want to put a pin in that. So he comes back. He goes on hockey tour. It's called going on the road. It's not called going on tour. He's not a band. (laughs) It's not going on hockey tour. That's not what they say. It's going on the road. Okay, sure. Fine, whatever. They go on the road. OTR. Um, see you've given me a piece of information i've immediately taken ownership of it and that was so good otr i'm like super here for that i'm not gonna lie i'm gonna start using that in my everyday vernacular otr Uh, he's otr and he starts sending her gifts every single day flowers teddy bears chocolates tim horton's coffee mixtapes like all of the boy things that boys give girls. It's like romantic. The book does acknowledge that it's a little weird and obsessive. Mm -hmm. The book is exactly right. But also like this constant form of gift giving... I would just be so suspicious of it in real life. It seems like oh my an assertion God. of power and wealth to a certain extent. Yeah, this was like totally Dorian Gray. Like he's sending her hundreds of dollars of worth of flowers every day. Like these bouquets are mammoth. And like she's already tipped the flower driver like $100 by the first week. There's actually what I considered a fairly charming thing where he starts addressing gifts to her boobs because they had this whole thing in their first sexual experience. Absolutely not charming. Anyway, I thought it was charming. And then she gets this gift card to Victoria's Secret. Secret For $1,000, which is the most nouveau riche construction of that that I could imagine. Oh, seriously. Like, at first I was like, oh, like $100, it'll be like a teddy and whatever. But when it was revealed to her that she still had $900 to spend, I actually wrote vom, 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 vom in my notes. Also, Isabel, can you... Can you imagine spending a thousand dollars at Victoria's Secret? No, even in the heydays of Vicky C's being Vicky C's, I can't imagine finding a thousand dollars worth of product if that you I would have wanted. Have a thousand dollars to spend exclusively on lingerie? You should be going to somewhere like Agent Provocateur or La Perla. It was the most like Midwest bullshit. Seriously. I was so oh embarrassed. God. I know. I mean, Midwest embarrassed. I was like, oh God, like 
don't shit. Don't yeah. let people from the coast read that this is what happened in Chicago. Seriously, it's like this isn't what we're like. And also this isn't what she would be like because she lives in her parents' pool house on the north side on the lake. Like what the fuck? Like that's not where she's getting her underwear anyway because she's shopping at Kmart for like novelty underwear. Like the yeah. whole thing was just insanity. The fact that it was a thousand dollars, I was like, we have now entered the territory where like I'm not gonna lie, listeners, I think we have talked about it on a previous episode. How I Met Your Mother had this whole thing about like Dobbler versus Dahmer. Right, Dobbler versus Dahmer. And like I fall heavily on the Dobbler. I'm like, I love a guy who loves a big gesture. But like it's gotta be one and it can't be omnipresent like this. And it shouldn't come with the trappings of like this kind of marshalling of capital. No. Which is so possessive where it's like, look at what I can provide for you with my mammoth bank account. And I'm like, her stepdad paid for her to go to Toronto on a whim in first class. So like, my girl isn't hurting for money. This is a weird flex. Also like, it culminates, it should not culminate in him showing up at your place of business at nine in the morning and locking you in a conference room while you're prepping for your (sighs) weekly meeting. Further, it should not conclude with any kind of like flex on the other men in the peripheries of your life. Like her coworker, like knocks on the door and like summons a great deal of courage to confront this very popular, very famous hockey player and be like, hey, are you okay?" Mm -hmm. And he says she's fine and closes the door on him and asserts his dominance over all other men in her life. Like he further does it with the delivery guy who's developed a crush on her over the many days of delivering her things he also is going to assert his capitalistic dominance over this person by explaining that being weary of the fact that he's hanging around pointing out that he's already been tipped and then kicking him out of the apartment and then further asserting his dominance over her clearly sexually invested stepbrother yeah and Alex is also the only person who seems aware of and calculating the fact that her stepbrother is sexually attracted to her by micro analyzing the Facebook pictures <laughs> in which she's tagged because she has a private Facebook that she hasn't let him in on. He finds her work email in order to communicate with her. This is not romantic. No, it's not. It was not something I was able to rationalize away and enjoy in the book. I found it fearful and anxiety inducing when I was reading. I found it very anxiety inducing. Like I think I was able to be like oh flowers every other day seems extravagant but like there's a space in my mind where I can find myself finding that pleasurable but like once it had a verifiable price tag I was like I find this gross and cloying and terrifying. He is a straight up stalker Mm -hmm. and the way that he rationalizes it is so gross and the way that Violet actually never rationalizes it and she's like this is kind of creepy, but like, I'm here for it, I guess, is like one of the parts of the book that was never going to be pleasurable and then never found a way to like even ameliorate itself. Further, just so I don't wake up later tonight and being like, oh, I wanted to say that to Isabel. The gifts that he gives to her reinforce 
her identity as a sexual being and his identity as a person with personality. Yes. Because whenever he's communicating about himself, he's sending her things like Tim Hortons, which talks about his nationality. He's sending her a mixtape with his all-time favorite band on it, which I'm not sure if they're real or not. He's sending her, you know, indicators of who he is as a person. And then whenever he sends her something, it's a stuffed beaver because that's what she referred to her vulva as. It's Mm -hmm. a $1,000 dollar gift certificate to a lingerie store a mid-grade lingerie store it's owned by a man owned by a man like she is a sexual being and he is a person yes and what's upsetting is that doesn't seem like a calculated move when so much else that is unlikable about this book feels like a calculated move and a result of the first person mm-hmm. that is not ameliorated by further interrogation yeah that fact it's not it's because like her sexuality her sex objectness is part and parcel of their quirky discourse and it's like why do you get to be interesting like we never even find out what kind of music that Violet likes because we only hear about what kind of music he does Mm -hmm. we never meet her high school friends but we meet his yep we never learn about what she's struggled with identity wise but we learn that he has we don't even ever actually make it into the big house that she grew up in we only orbit the pool house and then later her apartment when she's asserting her own independence yeah and to be honest like her one friend who I happen to like as a character but her Mm -hmm. entire personality is she knows about hockey and Violet doesn't Mm -hmm. and I feel like even his high school friends who we meet fleetingly feel like more fleshed out whole people yeah just by virtue of the fact that like we know that they stayed in their own hometown we know that they were nerdy in school like Mm -hmm. we don't know anything about the Charlene like that no sorry to bum you out you sound really sad I mean I am and like I think that was always going to happen. I think this was a book that for me started off like a wet balloon. The balloon somehow miraculously inflated and then like I knew that any kind of scratching was going to immediately pop it, right? Like this was a pleasure balloon that was intended to be fleeting because like here's the thing, like if we talk about weirdest part and sexiest part, which we have to move to, there are so many sexy parts in this book. Like this book is dripping in actually fun, corporeal interesting sex scenes. Let's go there then. What is your sexiest part, Isbo? My sexiest part is after they have their bet with the air hockey table and they start having sex on the hockey table and then move immediately to the couch and like the way that he gets her out of her clothes and it's just like they just can't have enough of one another. It's like to the table, to the couch, to the floor. It's just like boom, 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 boom. And it was like dominoes. And like I was so in it and like there's a cold stop in that scene which is unpleasurable I also felt the cold stop because I was titillated by what had come before the air hockey scene is fun I like that they go on a real date she gets Mm -hmm. dressed up they order different kinds of food I think it goes to show how long I've been in a relationship that I'm like I like the part where they go on a date (laughs) true you know once you get into a long-term relationship it's easy to forget all of the anxiety around dating and it just mm-hmm. feels like butterflies when you look back on it. But I know like how sick I felt and how I was like, I don't know how I'm going to eat any of this food. Mm-hmm. And then would just embarrass myself by shoveling it all in my mouth. Not that you asked, but my sexiest <laughs> Your sexiest part, part. I want to touch on something with your air hockey scene, actually. Mm-hmm. That I think a competitive worldview, I think, is necessary to being successful.
successful in pro sports. And I wonder if that isn't somewhat indicative of what people like in sports romance. Like, Hmm. are sports romance fans, are they all also sports fans? I don't know. I feel like that's a good question. Yeah. Or are there people who don't like sports but love sports romance? Yeah. I love like sports romance, but I do like some sports. Like, I can get pretty into tennis and, and basketball. Yeah. And up until I stopped watching the NFL, I felt very strongly about it. I mean, I get what's sexy about sports. I get like the the oh hyped up thing and like the narrative of it, and, like rooting for your team and like all of that. And like you get so into the players who are like, you know, come come characters. And yeah. as somebody who is more than passingly familiar with professional sports as a thing that I used to enjoy socially, I am curious. Like, I think this might be a question for our social media. It's like, do non-sports fans enjoy sports romance and do sports fans also enjoy it or not enjoy it and like why why and why why for why for why for you know sports is like a romance novel but with an uncertain outcome yep although it is always going to be a happily ever after for someone but it's just like the drama you know there's comebacks Mm-hmm. Like a good sports game moves in waves and has yep. highs and lows. And not only do the players take on personalities if you follow them, but like when you're watching a game, like there's villainous refs and mm-hmm. entire towns take on personalities based on the mm-hmm. fans who regularly attend games and the traditions mm-hmm. that they exhibit and become like a character unto themselves. So mm-hmm. like I understand why sports and romance become so entwined, but I'm curious, like structurally, it makes sense that they would come together. Yeah. And I also think what we talked about earlier with this hyper masculinity, like this is a safe yeah. space to explore really toxic versions of alphadom. Yeah. Competition is patriarchal. Yep. Sorry, because there is a winner and there is a loser. And so that even stands if we're talking about like a sport like figure skating, because you're Mm going to be a competitive person if you enter into that, perhaps even more so because there's less of the team element. That's a real problem Mm -hmm. in this novel that they have to come together as a team in spite of this difficult romantic relationship Mm -hmm. to find success, which is an important point. Yeah. But now I want to talk about my sexiest part. Please do. And this is the point at which I felt like the novel had fully shifted for me from a garbage fire to something I was really enjoying. When Alex is OTR, the mm-hmm. second time in the book, after he's locked her in the conference room and taken her on a coffee date, they have a phone call, which turns flirtatious. Mm-hmm. I found that scene to be very sexy. And then it is disrupted by the fact that this book is insane. And she has had this sexy conversation next to her friend on the couch. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this encapsulates this book totally. Is that it has these perfect moments that then remind you, pour hot oil on your face. <laughs> I think that's so right. I think that's like such the right image where it's like I'm enjoying something and then somebody literally pours hot oil on your face or dry ice in your pants. Like whatever it is, like this book is like a fucking cold or hot wash and not pleasurable when it reminds you that it is a dumpster fire. Yeah. However, at one point (laughs) in this book, I started to enjoy the dumpster. I'm sorry that I keep searching my notes, but there was so much. I sent so many quotes in that beautiful Kendall formatting to the group chat just to prepare Isabeau and to let Nick know this is real. We're not making this up, Nick. We're not making this up. He knows it. 
at one point I wrote this character has the sexual maturity of a 19 year old and the idioms of a 79 year old. (laughs) And I think that's when she references a nudie bar. Nice. I'm looking back at my notes and there are all these points where I'm trying to solve the mystery of this novel. Mm -hmm. Okay. She's meeting Alex's family. Alex, I say gently as his grip on my hand tightens. If he keeps going, he's going to break it. I need my hand, not just for my job, but for other important tasks, such as jilling off. Way to center the female perspective there. Unfortunately, his focus is not on the hand he's crushing. It's on Buck standing beside his sister, which Buck is her stepbrother and his sister is Daisy. At least he's not touching her. Hey man, how's it going, Buck asks like it's no big deal that he's here. He's shown up at the family brunch. I pull on Alex's sleeve with my free hand. What are you doing here? He asks calmly. I'm losing feeling in my fingers. I lean in and bite Alex's arm. So she's standing in the family kitchen and her boyfriend's (laughs) family kitchen holding his hand and in order to get him to let go of her hand, does she flex her own fingers? Does she pull away? Does she say, hey, my hand hurts she bites his fucking arm in front of his family in his family kitchen to which i wrote this book is insane it is full of insane people from insane families doing insane things to each other but i am pleased there's titty fucking and drug use and that's my official review of this book the titty fucking scene i've never read one in a romance novel that particular sex act is a way of talking about the pleasure of giving rather than receiving without Mm -hmm. talking about the pleasure of giving labor because it's not hard Mm -hmm. like you know blowjobs or unsavory like oral sex might be to some women Mm -hmm. it's like the main thing against it is that it's a little unorthodox Mm-hmm. But honestly, like, I think it speaks to as a sex act and why I think it should be. Hi, welcome to my TED talk. Titty fucking should be in romance more. It talks about kind of the whimsicalness and silliness of sex. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that you can have sex with non-sex parts. But it also kind of alleviates that problem of the blowjob, which we already did a whole bonus episode. I think it was called a boner on us back then mm-hmm. about how that feels like a distinctive labor. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. I think that's one of the things that... And a sacrifice for some women. Yeah, or like something that like is distinctly unpleasurable or they're not good at. It's just like another space where they can feel bad. Yeah, um, source of anxiety. Right, until they meet the magic dick that they feel good about or whatever. I think what this is highlighting for me in a conversation with you is like, you're right, the sex scenes in this book are undeniably good. And there are other moments where this book is just like literally undeniably good like that moment where you know I try for indignant but it came out as shrill super duper relatable I think this is like the Hansel and Gretel breadcrumb of excellence inside of a dumpster fire where it's like it's literally a surprise every time you get to a nugget and you're like oh man this is like fucking what and I will not stand by like all sex scenes in this book are good because that's not even true yeah like the early ones the way it does that like welcome to an after school special about consent and then totally blows it is distracting when it's trying to be good and upsetting when it comes up short like I would rather it be like a 90s romance novel where it's not even an issue (laughs) like let's just act like it's not a problem it's not a problem that exists in the world and not something we have to worry about in this literary fantasy if you're gonna be bad at it and yeah I mean like that's boy it's like this book just didn't think hard 
hard enough about it, but was clearly thinking hard. And like, what does that mean? I don't know. Weirdest part. Well, we've talked a lot about weird parts, and I would say for me, two things I want to talk about as weird parts. We've touched on the stepbrother sex stuff. Mm -hmm. So I would like to focus on the fact that I don't think this book is right about professional hockey. (laughs) (laughs) And the first place where I noticed this is when our heroine is talking about her stepbrother being featured in gossip magazines and gossip blogs. I have never seen a professional hockey player featured in American gossip media unless they were dating a celebrity for another reason, like a reality show star or an actress or a singer or something like that. Yep. There are not multi-page spreads dedicated to professional hockey players and who they made out with at like bars. Nope. Having said that, I do feel like professional hockey, while not celebrated enough to appear in the pages of an Us Weekly on the reg, is profitable enough that when they go on the road, they're not riding a bus from place to place. Nope. Like, they're definitely taking a jet, right? I also have that in my notes, where I'm like, are we really on a bus? Is that real? Doesn't feel real. Oh, and the other thing is that the coach, the Mm -hmm. head coach of a big deal hockey team, which the Chicago Blackhawks are a big deal hockey team, which leads me to assume the Chicago Hawks are a big deal hockey team. They're such a big deal, they get featured in actual gossip magazines, which seems absurd. But they are a big enough deal that the coach's job is not to plan dinner and lunch stops along the bus route. (laughs) (laughs) Which is another thing that happens in this book. You're right. I forgot about that. But it's very listen, league of their own. You've got to, yes, you've got to suspend disbelief. Like, that's what this project has taught me, is that I've gotten too fixated on little inaccuracies, which are, like, the story of the book does not work without professional hockey teams being heavily featured in gossip magazines. Mm -hmm. The story of the book doesn't work without confrontations that are built on the tension of being in a bus with somebody for hours. Mm -hmm. And so I understand why the book needs these things to exist. But I feel like if you're writing about professional sports, like there's enough there IRL to play with. And like, if you know enough about hockey to know that when you walk into a hockey stadium, your glasses fog up, then you probably know enough to know that they jet from place to place and that they don't get featured in gossip magazines. That's an easily digested example of the slippage and the, I don't want to say quality, but in the conscientiousness of this text, Mm -hmm. where I can't tell if it's just wildly inconsistent or if Violet is intentionally an unlikable heroine, Mm -hmm. for example. And that gets manifested in these other ways as well. Like the fact that a professional hockey coach is planning diner stops while they take their bus from professional away game to professional away game. It's ridiculous. Hence why I thought they were on tour. I get why you thought they were on tour. What was your weirdest part? 
Oh, God. I think you're right. Like, this book feels like a very big call to, like, suspend disbelief, not get caught up in, like, the literalism. I think romance doesn't and shouldn't be required to live in that literal space. That's not its job. But there were spaces that, like, felt distinctly fantastical that also just, like, legit failed. And so, like, she has this whole thing where she's like, I can't get to my wax lady for my beeve in enough time. Don't even talk to me. And she waxes herself and then like gives herself this like purple massive bruise. Like it sounded like a welt. Like an actual welt. Well, like, let's think about this. Because I was like, how did she get a bruise and not a welt? But then later in the novel, you discover that it has to be a bruise because Alex has to confuse it for a hickey and become immediately violently sexually possessive of her. Right. And that's my weirdest part. Like his violent sexual possession of her in that moment where it's like they've been spending all this time together on text and phone and like his immediate assumption when he sees this welt or bruise or whatever this marking on her is like it's another man's hickey from going down on her and like who 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 is just sucking on someone's mom's pubis that hard like to give them a hickey fuck it's like your clit isn't even there guy like what the fuck are you thinking it was shit like that in this book where I was like even when I'm trying as hard as I can to suspend disbelief like I would get really wrapped up in this and I'm just like what the what how well, it's why like, it's exactly it's like what I'm talking about it's like dumb stuff that you yeah. have to suspend disbelief but then it's like it becomes an important part of the plot right like how do you bruise yourself and not burn yourself Right. How do you create a purple bruise on your mom's pubis when you're self-waxing as opposed to like a giant red raised burn burn type thing? Or just like the whole thing is irritated. Yeah. Also, just like I discovered a thing called a vajayshal. Oh, my God. What the fuck is that? A vajayshal is when a woman who has previously waxed you, then like a week later, goes over your bikini area to get rid of all of the ingrown hairs. Oh, wow. That you have because waxing is bad for you. Definitely leads to ingrown hairs. Definitely leads to ingrown hairs. But just think about that kind of like self-perpetuating economy that I'm going to rip out your pubic hair and then even though you cannot come back to see me until you are at a place where you are embarrassed to show right because if you're like getting a full wax and having an inch of hair is probably a problem for you and you might even not have sex because of it so you get like an inch of hair growth and then you have to come back but that doesn't happen for what two months and so periodically though you have to return to get ingrown hairs and little pustules popped to create the illusion of a smooth bikini line. I am at a fucking loss. I am at a loss when it comes to this stuff. I don't know how to explain it beyond pleasing a male society that is also infantilizing your sexuality. Like, show me how it's anything but that. Show me how you're actually going through this for yourself. Also, just the money. Like, there's the wax itself the and then the judicial. I'm just like, Jesus. Yeah. The time. Ugh, boy, howdy. You could be spending on, like, 
personal hobbies and interests. I just, I just need, I just, I just, I just. Womance or an omance. It's a womance. I would recommend this to people. I would also recommend it to people because of the dumpster fireness of it. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, this is buck fucking wild. You know, I thought about this a lot because I was like, the way that I'm reacting to it is not dissimilar or unrecognizable to the way that I reacted to Mermaid's Kiss. Yeah, yeah, same. But like, I just can't. Mermaid's Kiss has this like innocence to it. (laughs) Yeah, and like, this is distinctly not that, which is why for me, like. both of our weirdest parts is like, this person who wrote this book is very calculated, very smart, making very intentional choices. Yeah. Was able to make two very unlikable characters likable with very nuanced moves. And then all of the other manipulations become obvious. Yeah. And for me, it's like it has to be a no man's like I couldn't ever get over some of the Dahmer versus Dobbler stuff and like the sex shaming. I was just like I tried to suspend disbelief in the same way that I thought about Mermaid's Kiss. And it's like. I just couldn't get there with here. There but, you know, just, there are parts of it that slaps. This book has a charm to it, a readability to it, and quotes like, the pillows smell like Violet and it's soft like her boobs. I haven't touched ones that nice since freshman year in college. I also highlighted that and I was like, this is why I can't get behind this book. Like, he has had so much sex since college and he's like raiding boobs in this manner. Like, what the fuck? I had sex with Butterson's stepsister. Both times were stellar, unless it was part of my vivid dream. I lift my fingers to my nose and sniff. Oh yeah, my God. it no. definitely happened. Oh my God. My cooter has been in an epic battle with oh a cock God. monster. Oh my God. I mean, that's the thing is like, this book is fun to read and also yeah. has quotes like that. It has it all. And ultimately this manipulation, this cleverness, this structure, this weird, I took pleasure in the weirdness in a similar way to what I did with Mermaid's Kiss. And for me, this is a woman. I get it. Yeah. Just a no man's for me. Not going to recommend it, but I am glad that I read it. Have I loosened my principles? I don't think so. No, I don't, I don't think, think so either. Because I, I love to get weird. And this one is a fucking weirdo. This one gets weird. One thing I want to mention is that on our blog, we are going to be having posts related to further reading associated with the books that we're discussing as appropriate. So we have stuff up there right now about The Wish, if you want to go and read some other people's thoughts on Amish romance. And I'll try to find some articles about sports romance. I've had very little luck so far. Do you have any parting thoughts? I mean, it made me want to watch hockey, which I guess mission accomplished. Was that the larger goal of this book? Like, I went through all of that because someone wanted me to watch hockey. I don't know. I don't know. It was like one of those moments when she's like watching them get on the ice. And like, I used to watch hockey in high school because in northern Wisconsin, it was very popular. That's what you did. And I was like, oh, I remember this. This was fun. All right, cool. I don't have anything else to say. I never watched hockey in a big way, and I probably never will. Fair. With that, loosen your stays. But never your principles. Mwah. 
Whoa, golly gee. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabel. That's me. And Morgan, that's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzac. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best. If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at womancemail at gmail.com. You can also hang out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com. You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frog podcast network discover more podcasts just like our own centering on romance and reading at frolic.media slash podcast until next week Mwah.